If you will, turn in your Bibles to the first chapter, 2 Corinthians, as we continue our study through the Word. So you'll remember that Paul had written that letter that we looked at last time, which was 1 Corinthians. And that had been in response to a letter that Corinth had written to him. You'll remember that Paul had founded the church there in Corinth. And he spends uh, 18 months there, a year and a half, building its foundations, pouring into the people. And, and now they continue to seek his guidance. And, and so they had written some questions to him. And, and Paul now addresses uh, those, sends off that letter, 1 Corinthians, and, and he sends it by way of Timothy to them. You'll remember that they were very carnal. There were a lot of difficult subjects that Paul tackles and covers uh, in there. They were tolerant with sin. They were getting drunk at the, at the love feasts and the communion services. They were fighting with one another. They were taking the gifts and competing with each other. And, and so Paul really, you know, kind of has to give some, some stern instruction in that, in that first letter that we saw last time. And, and so the question now is, how well are they going to receive that? It's interesting when people are corrected uh, how you can either receive a, a spirit of humility where they listen and they respond or their flesh takes over and they rise up, they become prideful and then they counterattack as, uh, as well. And, and one of the questions that, you know, that this brings up is in our own life when the Lord is trying to correct you, when the Lord is trying to correct me, do we have a teachable spirit? Do we allow the Lord to minister and to change? Certainly the, the instructions that Paul has given were good instructions for the welfare of the church. The Spirit was wanting to make a change in the church. And so when the Spirit wants to make a change in, in us, what is our response? And so Paul writes that letter and then he sends it off. But it wasn't received well. In fact, things became so tumultuous there that Paul now has to change his plans and he has to make this severe visit. He, he goes over and makes a short, quick stop to kind of you know, deal with the, with the implementation of that. Or he comes back to uh, Ephesus again and, and things still did not get resolved. The, the, the false leaders and teachers are challenging Paul's authority and they're not wanting to make the changes and so Paul writes another letter, a severe letter that, that we don't have a copy of uh, that. And, and he sends it off this time, not with Timothy, but he sends Titus over with that severe letter. And, and now Paul and Timothy are going to head to Corinth, but they're waiting to see, you know, how did that severe letter and how did Titus's visit go? Is the church turning around? Is it starting to to implement those changes and, and and so if we can have the map it's always good to kind of look at a map in the background to hear when we're studying these journeys but Paul is in Ephesus and you'll remember that 
uh, that Corinth is over in Achaia. And, and so he sends Titus uh, over. Now, originally in 1 Corinthians, Paul talked about the fact that he wanted to come over to Corinth. Then he was going to head up into Macedonia to Thessalonica and Berea and Philippi, to those churches up there. And then he was going to circle back down to Corinth and possibly winter there and, and then head on. So he was going to make two stops uh, there. Well, uh, the travel plans have changed now. And, and so Timothy and Paul, they head off from Ephesus and they head up to Troas. And they're waiting for Titus to bring word back to Troas as to how the Corinthians are now doing. What is the state of the church? But Titus doesn't show up. And so Timothy and Paul are there <laughs> waiting for him, and they decide, let's head over to Macedonia. Let's uh, head over to Philippi, and we'll start to work our way down to Corinth. And, and while they are over there in Philippi is when Titus now shows uh, up. And Titus brings back a good report that now they have dealt with their issues, that they are ready to be instructed. They have received uh, now the changes that Paul has instructed them there in 1 Corinthians. They, they have now taken to heart and they are making those changes and, and the leadership is now in a place of supporting Paul's authority and the instruction and the changes that he had sent to them in 1 Corinthians. And so while Paul's at Philippi, he's going to head down to Corinth, but he wants to respond immediately to the Corinthians and to the report that Titus brings back to him. He's going to continue to get the the, the, the collection together through the Macedonian churches and then head down to Corinth. But in the meantime, he sits down in Philippi and that's where he writes now what we will look at, which is called Second Corinthians. And, and in that, we are going to see that the, the tone and the nature of Second Corinthians is one of relief. He is so glad that now there is unity between him and the Corinthian leadership that is there in the church. He, he is going to really kind of reveal probably this is most intimate and personal of the letters that we have from Paul where you're really going to see his heart and just how much he cares for the, the church and the people that are there in Corinth. And, and so we begin here in 2 Corinthians in chapter 1. It begins in verse 1 as Paul once again gives the, the customary greeting, the salutation, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia. And so again, Achaia is that Roman province, and so and Corinth and Athens, what we would say is Greece today. So all of the house churches and the various different churches that have been planted and where they are meeting here, and so not just the church in Corinth, but all the saints that are in that whole region. And Paul once again begins by identifying himself an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And so Paul knows exactly who he is in Christ and not only who he is in Christ, but also what God has called him to do. He is in the will of God. He is doing exactly what God desires uh, him to do. And that is first and foremost in his life. It's first and foremost in our life. Knowing 
who you are in Christ, recognizing yourself as a Christian, and what does that mean? What does it mean when Christ is the head over your life? What does it mean when Christ is Lord uh, of your life? And so Paul recognized, surrendered completely, and now he is in the will of God. How beautiful it is when we allow God to direct us, when we know that we're where we're supposed to be doing what we're supposed to be doing. And when we are there, it doesn't matter what's going on, our circumstances, it, it is just the glorious place to be, being in the will of God. And so he writes to the church there in Corinth, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul uses this salutation frequently, the grace and, and peace. And so both of those are great gifts from God to, uh, to us as believers. And, and so they are always in that order. In order to know the peace of God, in order to be reconciled with God, we have to have received the grace of God. And the grace of God is our salvation. By grace you have been saved. And that not of yourselves, it is a free gift uh, from God. And so by grace, through faith, each and every one of us has now accepted Jesus Christ uh, uh, for the remission of our sins. And once our sins, the, the separation between us and God is removed, now we can experience that peace with God. And so grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And so uh, here we see that you know God is the Father. That is His position in the Trinity. And, and we see here that He is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now, when the scriptures talk about, when Paul is talking about the Father of mercies, what he means, that word Father means the originator of. He is the originator of mercy. So mercy flows uh, from God. And once again, what is mercy? Mercy is not receiving the punishment that we deserve for something that we're guilty of. Our sins, we're guilty of them. Each and every one of us has a body of sins that we have committed in our lives. But we have now received the mercy of God in Christ that now our sins are punished, but we are not the recipients of that punishment. And so the mercy of God, when we recognize what we have been spared and how thankful that makes us to God, Oftentimes you will hear a person in court that is guilty that they will throw themselves on the mercy of the court. They're saying, I'm guilty, I made a mistake, I was wrong, but be merciful towards me. Don't, don't implement a punishment for my wrongdoing. God is the Father of mercies in our life. And every single one of us, we're recipients of that mercy. And what a great blessing that is to know that we are the recipients of so great a mercy. And he is the God of all comfort. And so uh, here we see that you know God encourages us. He comforts us. He is for us. Who comforts us, verse 4, in all our tribulation, 
that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And so one of the aspects of, of now the grace and the mercy in our lives and being connected to God is God promises the comfort of his presence, that he will never depart from us, he will never leave us, that when you go through a trial, that God is going to comfort you and be with you in the midst of that trial. I think that sometimes as a believer, we think that because I'm now you know, doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing, as we start to get sanctified, as we start to let things go in our life that aren't pleasing to God, that, that we think that the reward for right living is that we're not going to have trials. We're not going to have tribulation. It's, it's like, you know, we see trials and tribulations as punishments in our lives. And, and now that I'm conducting my life in a righteous manner, that I have this expectation that I'm just not going to go through as many trials and, and tribulations. But we see that, that that is wrong thinking. And Jesus himself said, in this world you will have what? Tribulation. You are going to have difficulty. Now, just because you're right with God doesn't mean that you get a pass on trials and tribulations. Everybody, the rain falls on everybody, the righteous and the unrighteous. Trials come on everybody, the righteous and the unrighteous. And so you don't get spared from trials, but you're either going to go through your trials being comforted by God or not being comforted by God. And so God is either going to be in the midst uh, with you, walking you through and comforting through those trials, or you're going to be on your own through those trials. Now, God allows us to go through those trials. Number one, he says that he's going to comfort us in those trials so that the benefit is that when you come out of that trial, you now have gone through a trial and you've experienced the comfort of God through that trial. He says, now, he says, you're able to go and to comfort others that when they're going through their trials. Because every single one of us, we're going through trials. There isn't anybody that doesn't have some areas of difficulties and pressures and, and problems and challenges. Nobody gets the free ride through life. We would like that. I would sign up for that, you know, the, the easy button in, in life. I think that so oftentimes what we want is heaven on earth. We, we want in this life to be, you know, beautiful and blessed and without stress and without problems. And that's called heaven. And we're, we're going to get there, but that isn't what this life is. So it's important that we have a right understanding of this journey, of this pilgrimage that we are headed through. You are going to have trials. You are going to have tribulations. Everybody around you is going to have trials and tribulations. And as God brings you through yours, he says, now you can reach back and comfort to others that are going through trials as well. And so we see that this is the way that God uses us uh, through and helping others in their tribulations. He says, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, and so we are going to suffer, not only are we going to suffer just like the non-believer suffers, but then we're also going to suffer for our Christianity. We're also going to suffer 
persecution and opposition. You are going to be the target of spiritual warfare in your life. And so we are going to have a regular amount of tribulation and then we're going to have some additional. But as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. And so it is always costly to be a real Christian. In our culture, which is oppositional to our faith, there's a cost to standing up and to speaking truth and to speaking truth in love. And so here we are going to have these, these trials, these sufferings, but also we are going to have the consolation that abounds through Christ as well. Now, he says, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. So uh, here we see that Paul is saying that what we're going through is going to stretch us. Our trials that we go through, they stretch us. And they give us a greater capacity to be able to encourage, to bring comfort to others in their trials. And, and also, when we're delivered from a trial, then also that gives hope for others that they're also going to be delivered. So when you come into a trial, one of two things is going to happen. Either God is going to deliver you from that, that's salvation, he says, or God's going to be with you through the midst of it. That's the comfort. That's the consolation. So, so one of two things is going to happen. And when I go through my trials, when I'm delivered from trials, that's an encouragement to others that, you know, these trials are not permanent. They're not forever. And, and so there is an end to those uh, sorrows. Or God is going to comfort me. And with that comfort he gives me, I can encourage and exhort others. Paul and and those that were ministering there in Ephesus were going through great persecution, great difficulty. The Corinthians also were going through their own persecutions and difficulties there in the city of Corinth. And so Paul is talking about this mutual uh, encouragement. He says in verse 7, and our hope for you is steadfast. It's solid, he says, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. So God doesn't allow you to go through a trial or a sorrow without being there to comfort you uh, along the way. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. And so Paul here now talks about the fact that, that they are really going through it in Ephesus and the great difficulty that, that they had experienced, uh, their trouble there in Asia, that we were burdened, he says, beyond measure. Now, you, know, you think about Paul, and you think of all of the suffering that Paul went through in his ministries, and you know, beaten and imprisoned and shipwrecked and stoned and, and, and with rods and, and all. And so when Paul says, you know, with someone that has that kind of a, a background, says that we were pushed to the limit. We, we were pressed to our breaking point. He says, in fact, above our own strength. 
It, it, it was that point of saying, I can't take this anymore. This is, I, I, by the grace of God, I'm holding on, but I, I don't know that how much more I can even possibly take. He says, we despaired even of life. In other words, they had gotten themselves into such a situation that now they thought that there is, there's, there's no way, that this is now going to cost me my life. And so Paul here believes that whatever this opposition, whatever this difficulty is, that it had gotten him now to the point where, uh, where they were believing uh, that, that this was going to, to end their lives. We don't know what this was that that was weighed him down that was too heavy to bear but god knew just how much paul was able to take and he kept that in situation just within that that ability there is an old saying that when god puts his children into the furnace that he keeps his hand on the thermostat and his eye on the thermometer that that that, that god if you are in great affliction today no, this God knows exactly. He knows exactly what you're going through. He knows exactly the temperature that you are in. He knows just what you can take, and he will never, ever press you beyond what you are able. Paul was in this type of a situation in a circumstance where, where they now despaired even of their life. He said, yes, we have the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. And so Paul here talks about you know, this, uh, this incredible deliverance that, that they had. And so you know, this is probably, it was well known to the Corinthian church, the exact references that Paul is making here and you know you remember that Paul talked about in first Corinthians how he's fighting with the beasts uh, there in, in Ephesus and and whether or not those were actual beasts uh, that uh, that he was in the arena with and and God spared him from that circumstance or uh, or situation it, it, it could have been when he was you know beaten by the Jewish court, 39 stripes. He talks about, you know, being arraigned there and, and suffering that. You know, could it be the, the riot there that was stirred up in Ephesus by Demetrius, the silversmith, and, and the tremendous opposition, and, and others believe that it could have been a physical malady, and, and so Paul's sickness and struggling with, with sickness, despairing, even believing that this sickness now was going to be uh, unto death. But we see here that Paul ultimately now had gotten to the point where, where he had to just put his trust in, in the Lord. He says that we didn't trust in ourselves, but, uh, but in God. And so uh, oftentimes in, in our lives, we have to just release the circumstances and the situation into the, the hands of the Lord. And Paul now experiences here this great deliverance. And he says, you know, not only have we been delivered, but we are still being delivered, and I have the future uh, hope of uh, deliverance. And, and so, once again, recognizing in the midst of your trial that God is either going to deliver you from your trial or he is going to console you through the length of your trial. 
Now, oftentimes we want the deliverance. We want the trial to be over. We, we want, Lord, you know, we'll stop this. But remember what trials are. Trials are a purification. They are for our soul. They are to change us and mold us into the image and likeness of Christ. And so, you know, we say, Lord, I, I want you to make, make my life like yours. But the only way that that is going to happen is with some correction and with some trials and with some reshaping and reforming, and those aren't comfortable. And so while we want to be, you know, sanctified, the sanctifying process involves oftentimes going into the fiery furnace of affliction to remove the dross that's out of our lives. So oftentimes in my own life, I know that when I am in affliction, how I press into the, to the Lord in a way that, uh, that I do not do when desperation and when trials and tribulations overflow my life, I am pressed right into the presence of, uh, of the Lord. And, and so this, this purifying process, how we manage and navigate tribulations. Paul, having been delivered, is celebrating the deliverance from the trial, but also speaks of the consolation that he has received through, through the midst of the trial as well. And so may you be encouraged today and encourage myself, you know, in whatever trials we are going through, God's allowing them he will deliver you at the time that he has appointed when they have achieved the purposes for which he's allowing that to take place. And in the meantime, he is going to comfort you through that trial. You are receiving the aid and the help that you need from God to be able to move through the trial that you are in. And so, regardless of the direction and the circumstances of your trial, God's in control. God sees you, He loves you, and He is giving you deliverance in due time, but also He will be with you in the midst, comforting you. He says now the, the comfort that they received from the Corinthians, He says, you also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. And so here we see the intercessory prayer. The Corinthians were part of the deliverance because they had now been a part of the praying and the intercessory. And so Paul acknowledges here the power of the intercessory prayer. So we want to be praying for those around us that are going through trials. And so not just our own, but look at the people that are in your life right now. And who are you burdened for? Who's, who's pressed in right now? And to remember them in your prayers, to lift them up, that intercessory prayer is effective and God hears our prayers and know that you are helping those that are afflicted when you are praying for them. You also will celebrate in their deliverance when, when God brings them out and you will be a part uh, of their journey. Verse 12, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly towards you. 
Paul has been the subject of attacks there by the Corinthians and, and by the false leaders and teachers that are there. And they're attacking his character. And one of the ways that they're attacking Paul's character is, is the way that Paul will change his travel plans. And so they're talking about the way, look at how Paul is manipulating things. Look at the way that he you know, changes his plans and all. And, and so Paul here now is going to kind of address the purpose and the reasons uh, for his travel changes. He begins by talking about his conduct, the character. Whenever I look at a situation and uh, a person, I always look at the character. Who do I know them to be? What is consistent with their character? And whatever is being said of them, is that consistent with the character that a person has demonstrated? Paul says, let's look at my character. Let's look at what you know of me and the way that I have, have acted before you. He says that I have always conducted myself here in, in simplicity. And so, you know, Paul talks about the fact that, that there isn't a duplicity that is in his life. His conduct, he says, is with simplicity. He says, with godly sincerity. He says, and, and not in keeping with fleshly wisdom but by the grace of God. And so Paul talks about now his love for them, how his love was guided more abundantly towards you. Paul was guided by love for others. That was the motivation. That was the character. That's what was consistent in his life. Worldly, fleshly thinking always puts me first and is always seeking my own advantage. So what they were doing in attacking Paul is they were looking at his actions and then ascribing a fleshly motivation behind it instead of recognizing that his actions had a spiritual motivation behind them. That his actions were governed by love, but they were accusing him of being selfish and manipulative in his actions. And so Paul says, you know, that by the testimony of our conscience that we have always conducted ourselves in simplicity with godly sincerity. He says, for we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. And now I trust that you will understand to the end as also you have understood us in part that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul's affirming his love for them, that he boasts in their, their fellowship and in the communion of the saints that is taking place. And, and so also that, that they should be boasting in, in Paul and in the way that God was using them, that, that eventually, that in the day when when they all stand before the Lord Jesus, that, uh, that all of this will come to, to vindicate the things that he is declaring. And, and in this confidence, he says, verse 15, I intended to come to you before that you might have a second benefit to pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. So, Paul's original travel plans was that he wanted to go from Ephesus. He was going to head straight over to Corinth. 
He was then going to spend some time in Corinth. He was going to head up to Macedonia, to Berea, and Thessalonica, and Philippi, and, and, and to those churches there. He was going to get the, the gift collected together, everything in order. And then he was going to come back down to Corinth and then possibly even winter there. So he was talking about making a double visit, starting with them, heading up, and then looping back to them. That was his original travel plans. Those were his original uh, intentions. But we see that Paul changes those travel plans. And, and so they are accusing him of being double-minded now, of being manipulative in, in all of this. And, and so Paul now needs to address that. He says in verse 17, therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh that with me there should be yes, yes, and, and no, no? Do I just kind of go with the flow and, and then do what is ever in my best interest, he says? Or, or, or do I seek direction from the Lord and what the Lord would have me to do? The Bible tells us that man makes his plans, but the Lord directs his steps. And Paul says, you know, that he takes his plans and then he presents them before the Lord and he seeks now for that confirmation. That's a good pattern. And it's something that we should do as believers as well. God wants you to make plans. He wants you to be structured. He wants you to be moving forwards. He wants you to be a good steward over your life. But at the same time, he wants to be able to guide you and direct you with the plans that you have. He has a plan for your life, and he wants to lead you into that plan. But it doesn't mean that we just sit around waiting for God to drop his plan on our lap. We, we move forward with, with our life, but then we're submitted and surrendered at all times to be guided by the Spirit. So Paul makes his plans, but now the Lord is the one that is directing his steps. And so and here Paul says in verse 18, but as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him amen to the glory of God through us. So Paul says, look, now there, you know, what Paul is saying is that my travel plans might change. He says, but the word of God never changes. The gospel never changes. The things that we have taught, so Venus, Timothy, and myself, they've never, ever changed. There's no duplicity. You're saying, oh, look at how unstable Paul is. Paul says, wait a minute, okay? The gospel never changes. Every single promise of God is yes and amen. My travel plans might change, but the things that I've taught and that I've instructed, those have never changed. I've never varied one bit in any of the doctrine that I have ever taught you. So he, he, he separates doctrine from travel plans and, and moves on. He says, now he who establishes us with you is in Christ and has anointed us is God who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And so Paul here now, once again, kind of talks about the blessings that we have as being a Christian. When you just stop and realize this morning the blessings that God has poured out on you, that, that right now, here and today, he says, first of all, that God is the one that is establishing us. God is the one that's strengthening you. He is the one that is helping you to bear up underneath this journey. You're on a pilgrimage, and your destination is heaven. 
And God is the one that is strengthening you along the way. And whatever strength you need today, guess what? God will give you that strength. He will give you the grace for today. And so God is establishing you and and how wonderful that is, how encouraging that is. I don't know what the trials are going to be for you for the rest of today, but know this, God has the supply for every single bit of that. He is for you. He is the one establishing you. He has anointed us. And so uh, here again, he has commissioned us and consecrated us and imparted the gifts necessary to be able to accomplish what it is that God has called you to. And so you have been anointed into your calling, whatever your calling is. And God has set his seal of ownership. And and so once again, that, that understanding and recognition that I am God's that I am God's. I am walking through this journey, but do you know what? Uh, in the back on my shoulders, you know, property of God. You know, God has stamped that into each and every one of us. You're the property of God. And so how amazing and, you know, and, and wonderful that is that you are sealed. And I played Little League. I had my baseball glove and I wrote my name right in the palm there. That's where my name was written. That's my baseball glove. It has my seal uh, on it. And, and that's what God has done with each and, and every one of us. He has sealed you. You are His. And then He says, and He has put His Spirit in us as a a guarantee. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that He has given to each and every one of us. What an incredible gift uh, that is that we have within us. He says, moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. We, Paul changed uh, his plans. But He changed the plans in in order for his visit to come at a more timely moment. He was concerned with the way that they were not responding to his other visit to the letter that he had just sent. When, when he comes now, he wants to come in peace. And, and so it seems what Paul was really kind of talking about is that he wanted to give them some process time. People sometimes need a little bit of time in order to, to work through some issues. They can be emotional, and, and sometimes it's best to call a time out to let the emotions just kind of settle down so that when we come back to this, it can be productive here. Paul is saying, I wasn't, I wasn't changing my plans because I was punishing you or to separate myself from you. I, I was doing it in order to protect our relationship, in order to be able to continue to, to move forwards. I, I didn't want to have a negative interaction after that severe visit that he had and after that severe letter that he wrote he wanted his next interaction with them to be um, positive and so uh, here he says you know in order to 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 spare you he defers his visit he says not that we have dominion over your faith but 
our fellow workers for your joy. For by faith you stand. When Paul comes, he doesn't want to come, you know, with having to deal with apostolic authority. He wanted to come as fellow workers with them. He wanted to come in, in unity of spirit with them. And, and so Paul doesn't want to, you know, have to deal with, you know, with the authority uh, issue here. And so he says, we are fellow workers for your joy. And for by faith that you stand. And so uh, your connection with Christ, that, that is how we stand together. And that's what Paul's concern was. He's going to continue in this next chapter to talk about you know, the fact that, uh, that he spared his visit. You know, he delayed that because he loves them. And, and so we will move into that next time. As we close our study here for a minute, I really wanted to just land on verse 20 for a second where it says, for all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us. Paul talked about trials and, and the trials that we go through in our life. And, and he says that you are either going to experience salvation, deliverance from the trial, or consolation. And, and so that got me to thinking about, you know, the consolation. The, the consolation that we have that God helps us to be able to, to move through trials in our lives. When you go through a trial, one of the ways that God gives us comfort is through the promises that are in his word. That we have a book of promises. This is a, this is a book of God's promises that are right here to us. And and so we are encouraged and ministered to when we pick up this book and when we read about the promises of God. That listen, every single promise that God has made in this book is going to come true, has either already come true or is going to come true. Amen? And, and is that encouraging? And, and so when you start to, to look at the promises that, that God has made in this book and, and those promises, they, they give us comfort because we're able to stand upon the promises of God. This is what you're able to stand upon. No matter what's going on in your life, you're able to stand upon the promises of God that are found right here in this book. And so we are comforted through the, the promises of God. We see the promises of God, how they began all the way back when Adam and Eve fell. And as God is removing them there from the garden, he promises them that the seed of the woman that is going to bring forth the one that's going to bruise the serpent's head, that was a, a promise. And so that seed of the woman, that refers now to the virgin birth of the Messiah. And so he would come and he would crush the head of Satan. That is the the, the, the picture of victory over sin and death. God takes Abraham. And you remember how Abraham and Sarah had no children. And he promised that your descendants are going to be innumerable upon the face of the earth. And, and then God was faithful in that promise. And, and so he also promised that through Abraham, all the nations of the world were going to be blessed. 
And so, once again, the Messiah was going to come through uh, Abraham. And, and so, one of the promises. And, and then, the Mosaic Covenant and the way God then promised to make them a nation and gave them the law there at Mount Sinai and brings them out to David. He promises that from your descendants, from your house, the Messiah is going to come. And, and we see the fulfillments of each and every single one of these promises as, as God has continued to deal faithfully. We see that, uh, that God promised that, uh, that each and every one of us would be saved. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whomsoever should believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And you are a recipient... If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you, you are a recipient uh, of that promise that whoever confesses with their mouth and believes with their heart that Christ is Lord, that they are a child of God. And so we are the recipient uh, of that. We are recipients of the, of the continual presence uh, of God in our life. We see that Jesus told us that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us, that he will stay closer than, uh, than a friend. Jesus, when he departed, promised that he would send the Holy Spirit, that you wouldn't have to journey through this, this struggle alone, that you would be baptized into a fellowship of believers now, the body of Christ, and that you would have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that was inside of you, comforting you, instructing you, helping you, leading you every single step of the way. These are the absolute sure promises of, uh, of God. When Christ departed, he promised that he's going to return again. Uh, and so we look forward to that second coming of Christ and, and the sure promises of, uh, of God. He promised his peace that we would have, not as the peace in gives, but the peace that passes understanding that will guard your heart and your mind. These are the promises that we can build our lives upon, that we can stand upon. This is the, the consolation that, uh, that we have. And we have the promise that Christ is going to return. The Bible ends with, yes, I am coming soon. Lo, uh, I am returning to you. And, and the new heaven and the new earth that is going to be created, these are the, the promises of God that give us that consolation in uh, our lives. We've been adopted. We are free from condemnation. We are the recipients of his love. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. These are the promises of God that build our lives, that, that console us. And we now are in that journey where God is going to either deliver us from the trials that we're in, or he is going to console us with his holy presence as we move through them. And in the meantime, may we look up for our redemption draws nigh and be strengthened in every trial for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. Lord, every single one of your promises has come true or will come true that every single promise is yes and amen. We are thankful for that and for the consolation of those promises in our life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.